This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. It's Ray Harkins, and you're listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. Sorry for being a day late, but, uh, you know, life gets in the way. And um, this is free, so you shouldn't be complaining. That's a, that's a good way to start, right? <laughs> but anyways, thank you for downloading and listening and continually supporting the show. It's uh, it's wild because we're approaching five years on this show and uh, there's no – well, I would be doing this if like four people – well, no. I was about to say I'd be doing this if four people were listening. But just because so many of you find value out of this and I find value out of this, it's just like, man, just the, the perpetual motion machine keeps on going and I keep releasing episodes with uh, – interesting discussions with people who are involved in independent music. And uh, that is no different than what we're doing here this week. How about one week I just like talk to a random person, not even about music. (laughs) I guess maybe I have. No, I was about to say, maybe I've done that in the past, but no, I haven't. So the guest this week is Portia Sabin. And this is the conclusion of my, uh, you know, awesome women in independent music. Uh, This month I've been focusing in on uh, women who have made a real true and awesome difference within our beautiful music scene. And Portia is definitely uh, a person who made a major impact because, uh, yeah, she runs the label Kill Rockstars. And Kill Rockstars, for those that are not in the know, it's like Bratmobile, Bikini Kill, basically a legendary indie rock label uh, that, uh, you know, really, really fostered the scene in the Pacific Northwest and frankly around the country. And I was very excited to have her. Uh, she does an amazing podcast called The Future of What, and it's part of the Jabberjaw network of shows. So you should be checking that out. But uh, mourn her in, in a few moments. Let's get some, um, you know, top of the show business pleasantries out of the way. But these are all things that I am very excited to tell you about because, um, yeah, these are just... I, I find this space really fun to tell you about cool stuff. So can I do that? All right, let's let's do that. So first all is the lowercase noises, like the music that is the intro, the music bed, the outro music bed. He's releasing a new record. It's called The Swiss Illness. Go pre-order it now, lowercasenoises.com. You will enjoy it greatly for those of you that are looking for some nice, chill, contemplative that's not a word complative i don't know whatever <laughs> quiet music that is really just uh, it's it's breathtaking that's the best way of putting it so go check that out because i love what he does and i'm excited to be a, a small part of it and then <clears throat> this is something that's very exciting for me the uh so everyone like here likes music right like um, you right there you like music yes obviously that's why you're listening to this show but there is a amazing, amazing app called Symbol FM. I've been messing around with this for quite some time. And basically, I just <laughs> I wrote wrote the founder or one of the uh, one of the dudes who was at the ground floor in this. And I was like, man, I love this thing. And him and I started trading emails and he's going to be a future guest on the show. And uh, I just I want to sh- shower it with some love. So Symbol.fm. Basically, it's the easiest way for you to recommend music on a variety of social networks, including symbols own feed that they have they have such cool stuff and uh you should follow me on there i am at x purpose x p-u-r-p-o-s-e that's the word purpose surrounded by x's every time i have to say that for a variety of reasons i'm not going to disclose <laughs> people are always like what does that mean but anyways I- i'm not going to reveal that here but uh symbol fm is a great service i highly encourage you to 
join to sample it out to try it and basically it's it's just like i said the easiest way to recommend music to listen to stuff from friends and it just become more educated it's an awesome service so follow me you'll be able to see some uh, some posts i've done some music i've enjoyed recently and i think it would be a great dialogue for uh, listeners of the show to interact that way so please sign up for that service and check it out and I'm also very, very excited to tell you about this thing, too. I, I know everything I'm like excited, but it's true. I am. So there is an incredible band called Rise Against, which you are probably familiar with. But uh, they are releasing a new record called Wolves. And you can go pre-order right now, riseagainstshop.com. And I mean, Rise Against is just, they're unbelievable. Like, I've watched them from being like, you know, a uh, a cool punk band from Chicago to, I mean, they're a mainstream major rock act. And the energy that they have put out ever since I saw them the first time at Chain Reaction here in Southern California to the last couple times I've seen them, it just, it's it's unbelievable. And the fact that the band stands for something, the fact that the band is politically engaged and are basically the same human beings as when they started this thing, these guys deserve your uh, unending and unrelenting support. So their new record comes out on June 9th, and uh, they're doing a little tour this summer with, uh, you know, Deftones and Thrice, like no big deal. It's a huge tour. So please go to RiseAgainstShop.com. Their new record is called Wolves. I've listened to the first single. It's awesome. It's available on any streaming platform. So go check it out because Rise Against deserves your support. And uh, the record, I've, I'm waiting with bated breath to hear the whole thing. But if, it, if it's as good as the single, holy moly, you're in for a treat. So RiseAgainstShop.com and prayer to the record. So, yes, now, Portia, like I said, she uh, is the owner, uh, proprietor, president, whatever you want to call her, of Kill Rockstars, and uh, I, I, this was such a fun conversation. I actually uh, I got cut off at the end, which I'll, I'll leave that in so you can hear what happened, because basically uh, she had to do a meeting with uh, the other staff of Kill Rockstars, and uh, frankly, I wasn't aware about that, so that's my bad, and so we had to cut this off a little bit preemptively, because I didn't get to dig into a few questions that I wanted to ask, but... Nonetheless, it is still a good conversation. So here it is for your enjoyment, and I will talk to you after the episode is over. My first entry point, like I'm 36 years old, so I was definitely of a generation where um, you know, like 120 minutes on MTV was like my life's blood in regards to getting exposed to independent music. And I remember, uh, this, I, I want to say the Beastie Boys were on there and whether it was the, them mentioning the record label or it, it basically kill rock stars got mentioned. And it was one of those things where, you know, in my young, whatever, 11 or 12 year old brain, someone says like a record label called kill rock stars. I'm like, Holy shit. That sounds so tough. Like that's amazing. <laughs> Um, do you, like, do you find that that, uh, you know, that, that the moniker of the label still evokes a, a reaction from people in regards to that saying, I mean, you know, it lessens over time, but uh, do you still find people kind of bringing up either those anecdotal stories of first hearing about the name of the label and then finding out more about it? Or is it one of those things that you just frankly don't ever <laughs> think about that anymore because you've been involved for so long? Well, the funny part is, um, 
you know, how it plays out in different ways in, in your life. Um, and I felt the same way the first time I heard Kill Rockstars. I was like, oh my God, that's the coolest name. I got to check this out. But now that I'm old and have a kid in school and stuff, I find that it's like more like I have to give like um, administrators my email. And I'm like, okay, that's Portia at Kill, K-I-L-L. And then I'm like, oh man. <laughs> so it's like, that's, it's like this bummer now. <laughs> like, right. I'm like, oh, everyone thinks I'm like, you know, this complete weirdo. Like everyone in my child's life is like, what does your mother do for a living? Like, how strange. But that's cool. You know, he'll grow up well adjusted. He'll have heard it all by the time he gets into high school. Right. I figure. <laughs> no, that's very, <laughs> that is very funny when you, because, you know, clearly when uh, the label was set up and, you know, clearly you were not at the complete ground floor of naming the label, but, you know, that's a, comp- that's a byproduct that happens many years later where it's like, oh yeah, like, I wonder how, <laughs> I wonder how other adults will, will interact with this name that is like pretty, pretty provocative for most people. Totally. And I mean, I still completely, I mean, I didn't have anything to do with naming the label, um, my husband started the label and, and they actually couldn't figure out a name. He and the people who were, who were involved in the label in the early days, they couldn't figure out a name and they were having a just so, you know how it is. It's like naming your band. I mean, it just was like endless conversations and they were going around and around and everybody had their factions. And at the time my husband used to do this art where he would like go to the Goodwill and buy paintings for like a nickel or 25 cents, you know, like big canvases on, um, with frames and he would like spray paint or, um, or stencil words over whatever the painting was. And he had just painted the words kill rock stars on this painting. And that was in the office. And so everyone was just like, well, what about just calling it kill rock stars? And everyone was like, okay, fine. It was like the only name that they could agree on. (laughs) I, it's so funny because almost every uh, naming of a band that you know, basically from like 1987 on, has been some iteration of that. Where it's just like I don't know, let's call it Desk Lamp. All right, whatever. Right. Just what's right in front of. <laughs> we used to joke about that all the time when I was in high school. We used to like make up band names like Chocolate Fork. You know, just totally stupid, like two, two words that have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> just make that, which is really funny because I feel like, you know, rock has gone through so many iterations now because, you know, you just keep living, you get older and older and like all this stuff happens and you're just like, whoa, man, this is still happening. And, and it's like, remember everybody went through, like there was this phase in the early nineties where you would literally rather be dead then name your band your own personal name. Like, yeah, (laughs) right. Right. Like that was the kiss of death. Even it was just one guy. It had to be, or woman, it had to be a band name. Like you had to have some sort of moniker. And then after a while, like that completely switched. And then, you know, we have all these bands that are just the person's name or, you know, and then you couldn't tell anymore because I think it used to, people used to think, well, if your name is just one name, then it, you're like Paul Simon. You're like some kind of folk guitarist, right? You're going to be like this singer songwriter with a guitar. And then it just kind of switched. And now, you know, that's not necessarily true either. Um, but I got really disillusioned with band names in the last, like, I don't know, 10 years. I'm like, where's the creativity? Where's the interesting, where's the interest factor? People were just so you know, they were naming their, their bands, these things that were so basic that they were totally ungoogleable. Yep. We used to joke in the office all the time that the absolute, like the next band that came along was going to be called cat video. 
right. because there would be absolutely no way to Google that at all. Like you would just never find it on a search engine. No, ever. Totally. totally. I, I think a lot of that, you know, stemmed from the fact that the, the bands that were naming themselves that were intentionally doing so to be like, well, fuck you, Internet. Like, you know, we're, we're totally indie cool cred band that there's no way you can find us, you know. Right, right. But for it was funny because running a label, we were just like, for God's sake, people. Like we had a band out of Florida called Gospel Music. Just those two words, Gospel Music try googling gospel music florida <laughs> right not, not forget not. about it or gospel music band forget i mean you know it was impossible it was literally impossible to find that band at all right <laughs> it's like you got you especially you know with the uh the the business mind that you have to sometimes approach these things with where it's like hey band like your music is unbelievable but like no one is going to be able to discover this thing like we're right you're, you're stacking a lot of cards against yourself Exactly, exactly. And I think that's, and then that sort of bred the next phase, which was the MGMT phase, like where everybody had an, like an acronym. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was better because at least you could kind of find those. Right. I, I was surprised that the, uh, I mean, I guess along those same lines, the, you know, every Web 2.0 company that just removed uh, vowels and, you know, bands were just, just constant, or not bands, but, you know, websites or whatever service that people were getting out there was just consonants. Um, you know, it didn't, I expected more of that to happen within the context of music and bands that it would just be this, you know, huge crop. And granted, there were a lot, but not to the extent of where I felt like it dominated the conversation for like years. It didn't, but it's coming back. Have you noticed that just in the last couple of years, there's more? Just like even in the last six months, I've noticed more. And I was like, whoa, you guys, it's like, wasn't that not cool like a year and a half ago? <laughs> totally. Like, totally. What are you doing? <laughs> so confused. You're, you're, you're ripping off, uh, you know, the latest app that is launching. Now you're like, is that an app or a band? <laughs> yeah, totally. App or band, right? That should be like a game show. App or band. <laughs> right. And so many people would fail. Uh, so like focusing on you yourself, you you were, uh, were you born and raised on the East coast? I'm kind of guessing with your, the schooling that you, uh, uh, went to. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I was born on tour because my dad is a, an actor, a stage actor. So I was born in, in a touring company of Promises, Promises. Um, and then we ended up, you know, we were sort of moved around a ton when I was a kid. And then uh, we fetched up in New York City when I was five. So I, I really grew up in New York City, Manhattan. Got it. Yeah. So what, what, uh, what town were you actually born in? Chicago, Illinois, actually. Okay. Right. Yeah. But we were only there for like a month. So I don't think it, it's a, it's not particularly, you know, I don't feel like warm and fuzzy towards Chicago or anything. <laughs> right. Right. That's really interesting. So you, you basically when you, you were your father, I presume your mother was with you as well. Yes, my mom was traveling with us. Yes, yes. Tough to have a baby in a hospital without somebody there to do that. Yes. It's true. Uh, so I, I presume the tour would be, uh, you know, you guys would post up in a particular city for, you know, whatever, month, month and a half, as long as the show ran, and then be on to the next one? Yeah, that is what they tell me, that how it used to work back in the day. Right. And you were, uh, it, 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 did you see the movie, uh, this is, I don't know what this randomly just came into my head, but a movie called Captain Fantastic with uh, Viggo Mortensen? No, I okay. did not. It came, whatever, it came out last year, but uh, not not like I'm equating your childhood with the premise that I'm going to tell you about this movie. But uh, this basically this uh, this this guy lives out in the woods with uh, five of his kids, and he you know 
raises them being very sheltered from the outside world, but, you know, being completely educated on, you know, matters of like Noam Chomsky and (laughs) how how the government really works and all this other stuff. But um, the only reason that just it it kind of sparked that that memory was the fact that uh, I I'm guessing the unconventionalness of uh, traveling around from city to city. I, I guess when you were five is when you started to enter school. Uh, but you know, do you reflect on that time at all of being like, Oh yeah, like I have these like pockets of memories that, uh, you know, might not be typical from what other people have experienced. You know, that's a good question. I don't actually know. Cause I don't really have a lot of memories before, um, before I was five living in New York. I mean, I remember the apartment I grew up in obviously really well. Um, I know that when we were, cause when I was four, my dad was on, uh, a TV show called When Things Were Rotten, which was a Mel Brooks sitcom about um, Robin Hood. And that was, so we lived in LA for like a year when I was like probably from, you know, four to five. And I remember going to preschool there. Um, But that's like my earliest memory. And I barely remember that. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Did your uh, mom work or basically she just, you know, was busy taking care of you as your father was on the, uh, the actor grind? Yeah, she, you know, my mother is a weirdo. She doesn't talk about that time a whole lot. Um, I know that she got a job when we moved to New York uh, because she always worked when I was growing up. But I think maybe when I was little, little like that, she was mostly a stay at home mom. Um, I don't think she liked it. So I didn't hear a lot about it. <laughs> no, that's a, that is a very good point because you, uh, I mean, especially of certain generations in which, you know, the, uh, notion of the father bringing uh, the breadwinner and the woman needs to, you know, stay at home and, you know, whatever cook and take care of the kids that, you know, that didn't, that gelled with some women as far as their lifestyle was concerned and what their maybe own personal desires were. But then, you know, probably your mother, there was a, uh, there, there's a large contingent of women who are like, yeah, I've got like more to say than just like this particular slot that I put in. Totally. And it's also funny, an acting family, you know, I mean, my father, when he was working and he was working all the time when I was little, you know, if he was in a show, for example, he worked at night. And so he was around during the day. He was, it wasn't like he was out of the house. And my, I have a very good memory from, um, 1980. So I would have been nine. And my, uh, my dad was in a Broadway show. He was in Othello on Broadway with James Earl Jones as Othello. And he would, you know, I'd be home when he got, when I got, he would be home when I got home from school. We would like, you know, do my homework, uh, watch TV, you know, eat dinner together, hang out. And then he would at some point leave, go get on the subway, go downtown, do the first act of the show and then jump on the subway at intermission and come home to tuck me in. And it would be like, you know, nine o'clock and he would just tuck me in and say goodnight, And that would be it. And that was like our life. And that was good. Like that was easy, you know, cause he was always around and it was just like, yeah, he has an hour and a half of work at night. Right. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's kind of like perfect. Yeah. No, that's really cool because I, I you know, I get so, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm 36 and I have like a five year old and, you know, I'm, I have the luxury of, you know, working from home and like dropping my kid off at school in the morning and stuff like that. But, you know, I see it still where, 
the you know father figure plays a you know an important role in in many children's lives but then there's there is like you said that uh, absence of time that may happen where it's just like oh yeah like you know dad gets home from like seven o'clock and maybe gets sees his kid for like an hour during the weekdays but that's amazing that you had the complete opposite experience I know. And I think it's really similar. You know, nowadays, I think everybody has that trouble. I mean, you have to have a lot of money to or have a, a specific lifestyle to have that luxury of staying at home. Because I think a lot of people really struggle to find time to spend with their kids because um, they're mostly both working. So somebody has to juggle, you know, or they both have to juggle to try to, you know, get bits and pieces of time with their kids. Um, we sort of have the opposite situation right now. I sort of turned into like um, the dad, you know, the traditional 50s dad because I go to work every day in an office. Right. And I come home late and my husband's the stay-at-home person. And, you know, and I really think it's funny. I think it's translated a lot to our kid because I feel like, you know, it's like if he has an emotional issue, he likes to go talk to my husband about it. <laughs> I think right. he feels like daddy's the, you know, he's like the soft one. And I'm like... Why? Why haven't you brushed your teeth yet? Right, kind of one. Yeah, you you come in the door and be like, "Why is this house a mess? Come on, guys! Why is this house a mess? God damn it!" <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. Uh, did you have uh, brothers and sisters? Nope, just me. Nice, only child life. I love it. Yeah, everyone thinks everyone who has siblings thinks it's really romantic and fabulous to be an only child. But I'm like, but you have to deal with those crazy people who are your parents with no buffer. Yeah. Like, there's nobody to help you out. It's just you. It's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm only child as well. But I mean, I love the experience. But there's definitely, uh, if I had different parents, I definitely could easily see what you're talking about. And th- the fact that you could, you know. Uh, divide the attention amongst your siblings and be like, okay, I don't feel the the full force of whatever it is that my parents are are going through or whatever uh, that you have other people to spread it across to. Totally. And I don't want to imply that I had like, you know, bad parents or that they were mean or anything. They, they totally weren't. I mean, and when I was a little kid, especially they were, you know, they were really good parents, but it's just that, you know, it's a very intense relationship. And I think people, who have siblings don't necessarily feel that intensity because I think they feel like they can spread it out a little bit. Like maybe they have a specific relationship with their mom or whatever, but they know that their mom has other kids. So it's like, I don't have to take the brunt of every single second of her emotional, whatever, let's say. Um, and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's also different for just different kids and families. You know, maybe one kid is the confidant or, or whatever. I'm sure it's different for everyone. I won't generalize. Pardon the interruption, but I need to tell you about our good friends in Audible. I'm always so excited when Audible supports independent music and advertises on this show. It's an unbelievable service. So I have been super into walking very long distances recently, and there is no better companion for those long walks than Audible. You can dive into a ton, a ton of audiobooks that, you know, frankly, a lot of us don't have time to read. Like you try to read before you go to bed, you read like five pages and you're done. Boom, you're out. But no, Audible is something that you can engage with while I'm on these like hour plus long walks. It's beautiful. I've been able to revisit an old friend. This is a book I cannot recommend more highly enough. World War Z by Max Brooks. It is an unbelievable audiobook. You have people like Henry Rollins and Alan Alda doing voices for this particular book. And I know you may have seen the movie. The movie is nothing in comparison to the audiobook. And you can get that at Audible and enjoy it on your long walks. So please go to audible.com slash 100 words. That's the number 100 to start now. And it is, you'll get a free trial. Like there's, there's no better way of enjoying 
audio books than using Audible. So please go to audible.com slash 100 words to start now. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of your time. So please listen to that book and act like you're walking alongside of me. Or maybe you don't want to do that, but still enjoy Audible and visit audible.com slash 100 words to start now. Now on with the show. Sounding like your your upbringing uh, in regards to the you know profession that your father had, I, I'm guessing that you were able to kind of explore the idea of uh, unconventional you know career paths and that sort of stuff. Um, am I correct in that assumption, or was that one of those things where uh, your parents were like, "Well, you know, dad, dad's job is cool, but like it takes a lot of hard work and I don't a lot of heartbreak and all that sort of stuff," um, or or was that not the case for you? Yeah, my dad was super clear that I was never going to be an actor. Like, <laughs> he just made that totally clear from when I was quite young, because I actually did some commercial acting when I was little, little, like five, six. Um, because he just put his foot down. He was like, nope, you're not doing this. It's just too hard of a life. And especially for women, he really felt like, you know, we live in a sexist culture, and that sexism is a lot um worse when you're put into a situation where, you know, your looks are going to be judged first of all things, you know, regardless of your talent. And I, I, you know, I am actually, I was sad at the time, you know, when I was 11, I was like, but daddy, I want to be on the stage. And, um, and now I'm like super grateful to him. <laughs> like, thank you for not making me go through that. You know, that's, I think that would be hard, you know, especially for kids. I mean, I think when you come to acting as an adult, it's different because you've had an opportunity to form your personality and have some, you know, significant life occurrences so that you're like more of a real person. I mean, I have a, like one of my best friends from childhood, he's now starring in a sitcom on TV, but he had been in Hollywood for like 12 years before he got that show. Mm-hmm. And he's done, I mean, he's done a zillion, zillion, zillion things, but he didn't even start acting um, until he was 30. So it's like, he already had a whole life, a whole personality, a whole, you know, everything was all developed. So it's like, you know, getting the rejection of acting, the constant rejection of you're not good enough, you're not funny enough, you're not tall enough, you're not short enough, you're whatever, you're not pretty enough. Um, it was easier for him to take because he was already, he already had, you know, a significant amount of life. I think when people, you know, so I am grateful to my dad because I think if I'd started acting at 11 in a very serious capacity, that could have just made me into a crazy person. Right. Well, I mean, you see it all the time with child actors. Very few of them come out unscathed from that experience. Exactly. It sounds, and I feel the same way now. I'm just like, are you kidding? I mean, I had a friend say to me not that long ago, she's like, my son is so adorable. Do you think I should start putting him in commercials? And I was just like, it was like, I'd, she had said like, do you think it'd be fun for me to sell him to the circus? Right. Like, uh, no, 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 not at no, all. <laughs> not at all. Really don't think so. Like, doesn't matter that he's cute. You know, that is like, keep him cute, you know, keep him, right, keep, keep him fine. Keep him safe. Totally. Keep him yours. <laughs> yeah. Keep him yours. Like, do not do that. Do not put him out there. In fact, I have a horror story, which is, I will not name names, but, um, when my dad, when I was 15, 15, 16, I can't remember how old I was. My dad was living in LA and he was doing a lot of guest spots on various TV shows that were big mm-hmm. in the eighties. Like, Murphy Brown and St. Elsewhere. Sure. And I was out there and I ended up on the Paramount lot one day. I think my, 
I think my stepmom worked there and that's why I was there. And I was watching this show get taped and the star of the show, I, oh, I was 17 because this guy was 17. There was a 17 year old on that show that I had known like very, very slightly back in New York. And long story short, sitting in the stands, like watching this, the rehearsal for this TV show, I found out that this 17 year old boy was in a sexual relationship with his 35 year old manager, oh. female. And that basically she had, he had gone to Hollywood with her when he was 14 and his parents had just been like, bye, we hope you become a big star. Oh my God. That, that, that is legitimately selling your child out. Like, right. That's just no bones about that. Oh my God. Right. I was so, I, and I was 17 years old and I'm just like, ah, right. you know? <laughs> yeah, get me away from this. What? Totally. I'm like, what kind of a, I mean, if she was like 32 when he was 14, I was like, ah, yeah, just, that is foul, man. Yeah, it's that, not, I mean, that is terrifying. I mean, it, especially if it's setting off, uh, you know, alarms in your 17 year old brain. Like, you know, usually our 17 year old brains aren't capable of you know, right <laughs> much right. <laughs> are capable of being like, oh, wait, that seems unsafe. And yeah, right. And you're like, wait a minute. That sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I was so freaked out. I was so freaked out. I couldn't even believe it because I just was like, even then I was like who, I mean, look at 14 year old boys. Like who wants to touch a 14 year old boy? They're babies. I mean, besides the fact that they're, you know, whatever they're, they're children, they're yeah. small children. Like you don't do that with small children. It is so wrong. No, not at all. <laughs> that's no. yeah. yeah. Wow. That's that, uh, that is definitely a, a very horrific experience. I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't go down that road. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. Me too. Definitely. Uh, um, and so then as you started to, you know, develop your identity and understand, you know, I mean, that acting was not going to be part of your plan. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that music came pretty quickly into your life. Like, was that like junior high, high school? Yeah, I was a real early music adopter. I bought my first album when I was 10. Okay. Um, and it was Jake Isles band. <laughs> nice. Very good. Uh, yes. I don't know what, yeah, whatever. I like rock. What can I say? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I got really into it super fast, uh, and it became very important to me really fast. Um, you know, sort of all my friendships, I was just totally one of those kids who like would only hang out with the kids who listened to specific music. Like if you'd never heard of the Smiths, I wanted nothing to do with you, mm-hmm. you know, and high school is a good time to do that because, you know, everyone's in little factions anyway, right. based on sports or whatever. <laughs> So I just, yeah, I was just in this uh, little music world. I tried to pick up the electric bass, but um, couldn't find anyone to play it with me. So I didn't, uh, I didn't, like I had it at home and I would like play it a little bit. You know, I'd practice a little bit, but I'm not much of a practicer. That's not my forte. Right. So I didn't really You didn't pursue that, that, right. And so you, I'm guessing that you started to like go to shows and then independent music started to kind of creep into your ecosystem once you started to realize that there was such a thing as like local bands and stuff like that? Oh yeah, exactly. And that was, you know, CBGB's and Rest in Peace uh, used to have this Sunday afternoon matinee show for kids. It was all ages. And so that was really fun to go there and, um, you know, because then I, that's when I actually started to see bands with people in them that I knew, you know, friends, like other kids could play, uh, on stage. And I was like, Oh my God, look at that. You know, right. there's this band of friends from, um, you know, the music and art school. And, you know, I had 
some friends who played in a band that was largely a, a police cover band, but, um, you know, they had some originals. Sure. <laughs> it was just really amazing. I was like, Oh my God, that is, that is like what I want to do. That's what I, what I want to be around all the time. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, the, you know, just because uh, I presume at that time too, uh, there was, you know, I, something I find so interesting is when you know you start to get into independent culture, and there aren't you, you realize that there's different genres of music, and you realize like what isn't your thing. Where it's like, okay, I'm not like you know a death metal person, but I am like a metal person. Like you know, you start to draw these distinct lines, but when you're searching out for independent culture, you at a certain age, you sometimes just don't care. You're just like whatever. You're into weird black clothing stuff so like i'm into weird black clothing stuff as well so like i guess we'll go to shows together did you find a lot of that as well where it's like okay we don't have the distinct same music tastes but we do you know there is some crossover there yeah i think so and i think also when you're young like that you're you're more accepting i mean you get you get the idea of boundaries because there's an us and a them, right? Like, you know that you want to be on this team, like the music team. But I nef- I didn't know, I think then, I didn't have as strong a sense as I did, like maybe when I was in college about, oh, this music is, you know, really good music and this other music is crap. Like, I would, I would be way more interested in just going to a show just for the heck of going to the show rather than, you know, saying, oh, I couldn't possibly go to that show because it's some genre that I'm not interested in. So I ended up, you know, seeing, like a lot of kids do, I think, a lot of stuff that I'm so glad I saw. Um, You know, there were, the first time I saw the Ramones, I saw the, I mean, I got to see the Ramones, which was amazing, right? You know, when I was 16 or something at the Old Ritz. And I saw Shriekback and PIL and, you know, just these great bands that were playing at this relatively small club, The Ritz, in New York. Um, that was just a really, really good time for music. You know, To I got lucky that I came of age right then because there was a lot of cool stuff going on and there was a little bit more latitude in pop culture. You know, it wasn't quite as regimented, I feel like, you know, the whole thing with MTV uh, really changed the culture for a few years there because it let us, uh, you know, I always say 1984 was an amazing year because you could put the radio on and you would hear, um, you know, Brian Adams and then Duran Duran and then Shaka Khan and then the Stray Cats. Right. And it's like, when would those four genres ever appear on the radio together nowadays, like on Top 40? It doesn't happen. Because everything's much more cut off, you know, much more um, constrained in terms of what things have to sound like. So yeah, that was a great that was a great time to to go out and see bands and, and come of age. I also love the uh, naivete of you know the, what I like to call kid logic, where you start to you know you're getting into things kind of devoid of context. You know, it's like you're not paying attention to music as much as to say that you just like it, you know, like you're not like, Oh, well, you know, as you get older, you do this where it's like, Oh yeah, that, you know, that band's part of this scene. They're, you know, sellouts or whatever, you know, like all these things that kind of come in with, um, you know, adult knowledge. But you know, when you're, you're younger, whatever, between the ages of like, you know, 12 and, you know, 15, 16, you're kind of just consuming music, uh, you know, like you said, under the umbrella of this thing, the us versus them. Uh, but you're, like you said, you're given more latitude to like things that, you know, might not be uh, cool to like when you're 19 years old or whatever. Exactly. And that's, you know, that was so great because I got to see so many. I mean, I got to see, you know, I saw the Pogues. I saw, 
which, you know, I feel like the Pogues had like one second <laughs> in popular culture totally. that that was allowed, you know, like super drunk Irish band, like, okay. <laughs> it's Irish punk band, like, okay, that, that happened for right. a second, you know, <laughs> Um, but they were on the same stage with the Violent Femmes and, you know, just it, it was it was a time of interesting mixes. Definitely. Um, you know, and kind of jumping around here, but the uh, you are you personally are extremely overeducated to be working in the music industry. I'm not sure. I'm sure I'm not the first person to mention that. Um, but <laughs> because, you know, so true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, uh, you know, usually most people that, you know, because I mean, I, I worked at a record label for, you know, 10 plus years. I mean, I have a college degree, but, you know, you far outshine me in regards to your uh, your your paperwork accolades um, and probably, frankly, smartness as well. But the um so the the draw for you to kind of work alongside and you know like management and obviously working at the label now um you know how where did that pull kind of start to come into play because i'm sure there was a different path in regards to you know your schooling and everything that you were doing from that perspective well i think that there i had a lot of um i wouldn't say you know it's weird it it's yeah, I don't know exactly how to say this. It's not that my parents pressured me to to excel in school. It's that they put me in a situation where I didn't have a lot of choices. I went to a junior high school, which had a gifted program, and I was placed in the gifted program. And then one day, in the you know second half of eighth grade, our teacher walked into the room. She wrote Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, and Brooklyn Tech on the board. And she said, pick these in order, you know, pick these three in the order of which you want to go to them, and you're going to go take this, this test, this entrance exam to get into one of these schools. And so we just did. You know, it's like nobody asked us, do you want to do this? And I picked Stuyvesant because it was in Manhattan, Brooklyn Tech and, you know, uh, Bronx Science. I was like, oh, those are in different boroughs. I don't want to go to those, those places. So I just wrote down Stuyvesant. And about three or four weeks later, we all trooped off and took a, a test and then they sent me a letter and said, you got into Stuyvesant, you're going to Stuyvesant in the fall. And so it just was this path, you know, it's just like, I just got stuck on this path and there I was. And Stuyvesant is, um, is a feeder school. It's a specialized math and science high school in New York that, um, it's a feeder school to the Ivies and to a lot of other, you know, big time. In other words, when you go there, you, they, there's a lot uh, expected of you. And of course, this is all in hindsight. I didn't really understand any of this as a kid. I just was kind of going along and, you know, my friends got in. So I was like, okay, we'll all go together. Like it just seemed like what we were going to do. Um, but looking back, you know, then I ended up going to a four year college and I'm here to tell you, I worked harder at Stuyvesant than I ever worked in college, uh, in terms of the coursework, because they basically were giving us seven college level courses a day. And in college you do like four college level courses a week, <laughs> Wow! which is an incredibly different workload. You know, we were just killed at Stuyvesant. You know, I have a very negative feeling about it. I have friends who don't, you know, who feel like they, that it wasn't a, a terrible burden on their lives. But I look back and I think I would never do that to a kid. I would never put my child, I would never insist that my child go to a school like that because it was just too much pressure. I, you know, you have enough problems when you're 15, 16, 17. I didn't need, you know, getting four hours of sleep a night because I couldn't finish my homework. You know, we had so much homework. It took hours and hours and hours every night to finish my homework. Um, 
it was just too much, you yeah. know, when I look back, it was too much. And, but I was in that mindset and I was in that, that track. So, and I felt like a failure if I didn't do really well. So, you know, when they can't, when they said, where do you want to go to college? I just listed all the Ivies because that's what all my friends were doing. And then I got called into the guidance counselor's office and she goes, you have not got the scores to go to any of these Ivies. Have you considered this college <laughs> called Grinnell? And I started crying because I thought I was being told that I sucked, mm-hmm. you know, that I like was so academically inferior that I had to be sent to like Iowa to go to this terrible place. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You, you get, yeah. You get sent to the corner school where it's just like, yeah, yeah you're going to sit in the corner and you're, that that's all you deserve. Right. So it is the cornfield. Like I was like, oh my God, they're sending me to the cornfield. Children of the corn. I didn't know what to think of this. So I told my parents and they were like, well, listen, um, do you want to go visit it? And I was like, okay. And I actually had a friend who had gone there the year before from my school. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm not a total loser or whatever. So I flew off. And of course, had the greatest time in my whole life because you know as a as a senior in high school going to a college for a weekend is like you know (laughs) dying and going to heaven I mean it was just the funnest you know everything and you were free there were no parents it was amazing um so I totally signed up and went there that was great and I really loved it you know that was a great experience I'm glad I went to Grinnell it's a wonderful college uh at the time they still had need blind admissions um, they still have the second largest endowment of any private college after Harvard in the U.S. Um, uh, they still are able to give a huge amount of tuition assistance. Something like 70% of their students still get tuition assistance, which is really great. So for a private liberal arts college, it was very diverse, which was nice. You know, there it wasn't just a bunch of, you know, super overeducated white kids right. in, a, in a cornfield. It was like a diverse bunch of overeducated kids in a cornfield. <laughs> totally. Which, I mean, that, and that, that makes a world of difference. <laughs> it did. It really did. It did. And it was a great place. So I went there. And then, but you see, when I got to college, that's when I really, that's when I discovered, I mean, I just like, can we curse on this podcast? Absolutely, I can't remember. Absolutely. absolutely. Oh yes. I, I, that was like, I did not have a fuck left to give about, um, playing in a band anymore, you know, cause I was just like, I'm going to play in a band tomorrow and I don't care if I suck. And so luckily, you know, college was full of really nice people who were like, sure, come be in a band with me, even though you completely suck and can barely play your instrument. So I played in bands uh, for three years, I played bass. And then my senior year, I started playing drums, which was also amazing because I got in a band like the day after I, I first started playing drums. So I took one drum lesson and then got in a band. <laughs> um, but that was it. Like I was just, once I actually started playing in a band, I was like, I don't want to do anything else. I am, you know, I'm you're done you're messing around. This is it. Like, this is what I want to do. So that was that. Got it. The um, and I'm guessing too a, a lot of the attraction to uh, the sort of music that you were going to you know of the independent variety did have you know subculture thoughts and uh, you know the non mainstream <laughs> presentation of music that actually has a message beyond that were you were you kind of immediately taken by that or was that something that you know as you became you know more educated about the world around you you realized the importance of that oh I was I was immediately taken I mean I remember hearing the Pixies like. I don't remember my freshman or sophomore year at college. I don't remember which one. And I was just like, Oh, this is it. Like now I know what I'm supposed to be listening to. (laughs) Like this is the music for me. Like this is exactly what I want to listen to. And then I just sort of, I mean, I was lucky because I went to college between 89 and 93 
and that was like such an amazing time for independent music i think in america like it was it was it was that weird moment when um you know before nirvana you know bn we should have this like moment in our calendars right bn before nirvana there were all these amazing independent artists on independent labels that were touring and making a living and really doing really prevalent and popular and out there right you could you could hear them on college radio and college radio was a thing right like a, a real thing like a powerful thing um and not just college but like the alternative stations, you know, I mean, we had an alternative station in New York that was amazing and played nothing but, you know, REM and, you know, et cetera. Like the, the bands that I wanted to hear that were on independent labels, which is interesting. Um, and then, you know, Nirvana happened. And then after Nirvana, A-N, um, there was that moment when the major labels just went crazy thinking, oh, this is the next thing. And they were just signing indie bands left and right. And so there was the second when we almost won. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. We almost made that move into the mainstream. And then it didn't happen. Um, but it, but the, but the bands that started getting signed were interesting because they were like our bands, right? They were people that we knew and they were bands that we played with and they were bands that we really liked. Um, and, and so, kind of that um you know that that almost killed the indie scene in a weird way at the time uh, but it also was an exciting moment because it was like the band that you love could be the next thing you know on the radio i mean i remember going to a show in the lounge of this dorm at grinnell and when i say lounge i mean it had some chairs in it and then it had like a one foot high step carpeted step and the bands played on the carpeted step like it was not a stage like this was not a stage this was not a stage situation and um the band that was playing was this band from minneapolis called soul asylum and it was this amazing sweaty sold out you know not even sold out but just like packed up show with you know all these college kids and the next thing you know they had a song on the radio like the next year because they got signed to a major um so it was that kind of moment where it was like it just felt like our bands were suddenly coming into the limelight yeah absolutely and especially too with the uh the train of thought that followed these bands because you know they didn't they existed in a scene that you know had accountability and had people you know when i say accountability i don't mean like people watching out to make sure they say the right thing but you know the 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 independent thought was fostered as opposed to so many of these bands that were born out of nothing beyond just a marketing plan and a gimmick or whatever and so it was like wait a minute what like these these bands have something important to say beyond you know just just watch us play on stage exactly and you know this might be a fine time to point out that that is what the name kill rock stars means and and that's you know i still stand by that today i feel it even more today actually you know that that um that the the system that creates rock stars is totally bankrupt and and a big part of the problem in this country you know that that you can take somebody and somebody who you know we can't even judge their talent or their whatever let's say and you put this big team around them, you get them a lawyer and a manager and you, and you, um, hire songwriters for them and producers and you do all this stuff and you basically, it's like the star making system and what comes out the other end 
I don't know how we handle that. Like what, because sometimes it works and you made a rock star and sometimes it doesn't. And then that person just disappears and we never see them again. You know, either way, I think that's a terrible system. So that is exactly what that name is about. Yeah, absolutely. The um, and so then, as you started to you know play in bands, well, first of all, I have to identify. So the the first band that you played bass in, uh, I usually find it telling uh, what the band name was because usually the band names of your first bands are usually pretty pretty awesome. So what was the what was the first band name that you played in? Where you actually like played shows and stuff like that? Well. I never played shows in any of the bands that I played bass in because okay. I was that bad and they were like pathetic. But the first band I played um, drums in was called Havelina okay. because we were a Pixies cover band. <laughs> I, there could not be. Yeah, I was about to say, okay, Pixies cover band. Sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's yes, good. that's good. That's good. What, what, yeah. what, what did uh, did that? Well, I guess what was the first original music project that you did that started to play shows? I was in an amazing band. I was. Oh God, this band was so great um, with my friend Jason called the Shepherd Kings. And we actually moved to Minneapolis to make it in the music business in the big city. Um, And of course that didn't happen, but, uh, but yeah, the Shepherd Kings were an incredible band. I love that band. Got it. Got it. Um, the, uh, so then, you know, as you started to pursue the, you know, music life and start to, you know, follow a path that, you know, I'm sure your parents were like, so, uh, so Portia, uh, this is interesting what you're doing. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that you've, you've finished school and you've done all these, uh, important things from there, but you know, how are you going to make a living? Uh, was there ever any of those conversations that were had? No, but I had a lot of pressure. Um, I felt like my mom wouldn't be okay if I was just a punk rock drummer. So that's why I went to grad school. <laughs> Got in a nutshell in a nutshell right I, I it, it sounds like every step of schooling you did was to appease your parents <laughs> yeah you know i hadn't thought of that really i mean i haven't thought about that a lot yeah because i don't feel i don't like hold resentment about it i mean i'm glad i went to school it's right. just it feels it, it does feel like there were a lot of expectations but they weren't very vocal about them i just i feel like i would have just been a total loser if i hadn't done that i think sometimes that gets transmitted in families even if um, no one says it out loud. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it too stems from the fact that, uh, you know, p- parents, I mean, you can attest to this where, you know, parents like you, you, you know, you just want your best for your kid and blah, blah, blah. But it, it, when you bring something to the table, that is such a foreign concept for, you know, parents to understand where it's just like, Oh yeah, I'm going to tour in a band and are just like, wait, but you don't like, you're not trying to play arenas. You're just trying to play like dirty bars. Like, how is that even a thing? Like you can't, do, you can't do that. So like, you know, the, the fear creeps in of like, I don't, I don't want this person coming back to my house when they're like 45 years old and like barely living. Like, I don't know how to handle this. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, my parents were in the arts, so I don't think they ever were worried that I wanted to be an artist. I think, that, um, I don't know. I don't know if they expected more from me. I mean, my father was always just happy with whatever I did. You know, yeah. he was always like, that's great, honey. That sounds great. Um, and I feel like my mom, you know, she had her own problems. I don't know. I, I think I was a little more self-directed than that. You know, I just kind of was like, well, I got to do this because I got to do this. I think I just, I had a lot of ideas. You know how kids have ideas like this is how it has to be because just because that's what I think. Yeah. That's, that's the way it's got to roll. Um, and so then, you know, you, you sit, your role at Kill Rockstars and then, uh, you know, what you did with uh, your management company, 
you know, obviously a lot of business that gets tied into the music industry. And, you know, a lot of times people, whether they're doing it for their bands or whether they're doing it to, you know, help out their friends' bands, um, you know, have to learn how to do that or are either immediately kind of taken to the business aspect. You know, how did that sit with you? Were you immediately like, oh, yo, I get this. Like, I know how to, you know, whatever, book a show and settle and like try to help, you know, a band grow their career, whatever that may mean. Um, or is that something that you just had to learn how to do over time? No, I, I was, cause I was the one in my band who always did the business. I was the, uh, instead of the, the drunk drummer passed out on the couch person, I was the business like drummer who like, you know, took care of all settling up and, and, uh, you know, always was sober and, and <laughs> responsible. Sure. Here's so, the, yeah, here's that the came naturally. Right. Here's the yeah, exactly. Here's where we uh, here's what we got to do in order to uh, do this. Here's booking the recording time and all that stuff. Yeah, I didn't even start drinking. This is such a crazy fact. I didn't even start drinking until years after I stopped being in bands. Which, like, I don't even know what was wrong with me. Like, what was I thinking? I don't know. I think it's because I just didn't like beer, and I thought beer was the only thing you could drink. Right. It just didn't occur to me to drink anything else, so I was like, "Oh, I don't like beer, so I guess I don't drink." Right, you you were and that was that. You were unintentionally straight edge. <laughs> I was an unintentional straight edge, yeah, drummer. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That actually, the, I, I want to wager a bet that there is a large contingent of people who are like unintentionally straight edge, like you know, coming from the same scene that we came from, uh, <laughs> that are just like, "Oh yeah, I don't like beer," and then all of a sudden they realize, like, "Oh wait a minute, like there are other options out there." <laughs> Yeah, when I once booked a show at my college um, for that band Consolidated, if you remember them. Yeah. And um, they asked us to bring beer. So I went to the grocery store and I bought like three six packs of beer off the shelf Mm -hmm. because I didn't know beer had to be cold. Like I didn't know it had to be cold. So I just bought them like three cases of warm beer and they were so mad. (laughs) Like they were furious. And I was just like, what? (laughs) What is the problem? totally like this no this idea is, yeah this is literally beer i am bringing it to you like right you said beer <laughs> what's wrong with that here's your writer <laughs> yep oh man yeah, i learned that's amazing learned um, that one when when along the line did you uh did you meet your husband i met him in t- at uh in 2000 at a rock show i went to see slater kinney at irving plaza in new york and he was there got it got it we were introduced by a mutual friend well that that's how all good relationships start right at a Slater Kinney show, they better, yeah. <laughs> or I was I was referencing the uh, the meeting through a mutual friend. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Rather than uh, you know maybe uh, you know MySpace messaging each other or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, we are supposed to have a roundtable in four minutes, and everyone has just showed up. Okay. <laughs> so. So, um, so that this has been a delightful conversation, but I kind of have to stop. No, no problem. I, I, there are, there are other things I was going to get to, but yeah, we do not have the time or the place, but, uh, yeah, we can maybe pick it up again another time, but yeah, yeah. Thank, you, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks man. No problem. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Yes. So there was that conversation and, uh, isn't Portia just, just pleasant, just a fun hang. It definitely was a uh, unique conversation in the sense of, I, I felt like we were, kind of flitting around at the beginning but in uh in a, in a very good way i felt like we were drilling down into things that uh, i might not typically talk about on this show so uh yeah because you know i'll be honest there are times in which you know you, 
for those of you that listen to the show on a regular basis know that I have a familiar line of questioning. Like, yes, it kind of elicits uh, interesting responses and we kind of spin off in different directions. But there are times where the conventions of this show uh, trap me in a way where I'm like, OK, I, I'm, I'm going to be the show where it's going to dig down in uh, what makes this person who they are and how they got into independent music. And uh, I don't want to stick too much to that formula, even though, you know, frankly, it is why people come on the show. But uh, when I'm when I'm able to, you know, go on little tangents, it's uh, it's really fun because that's frankly why podcasting is uh, so cool. So thank you very much, Portia. And you should listen to her show, The Future of What, on uh, any podcast player that uh, you do consume and listen to your content on. Oh, I hate content. I should stop saying that. Please. Like I've said it before, and it just it feels so icky, so disposable. But anyways, um, the guest next week. Let's uh, let's dig into that. It is Cam Boucher. Boucher, I think that's how you say it. <laughs> He's from Sorority Noise and Old Gray, and uh, we had such an amazing conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you. It'll be a uh, jam-packed episode next week because I got uh, some music to play for you and a bunch of fun stuff going on. So that's uh, that's it. Okay. How about you have a good rest of the week, and please, as I always tell you, be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.